Good morning, ladies. It's time to get started so I can get you out on time. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you've given us this beautiful picture of Jesus, our great high priest. Father, help us to understand what you want us to understand this morning. And we ask this in his name. Amen. All right. So today we've reached the halfway point of Hebrews. Yay. <laughs> and, we've re- and we've reached the centerpiece of Hebrews, um, the priesthood of Jesus Christ. It goes from the end of chapter 4 until the end of chapter 10. Sometimes I think we struggle with the idea of priesthood. My first thought when I wake up in the morning is not, wow, I really need to find a priest and a lamb today. It's just not. We're Protestants. We don't have a visible priesthood in our churches. The idea of a priesthood is almost foreign to us. Sometimes I think we look at it in a kind of a negative light. I think Paula did a lovely job last week of putting the priesthood in context. A priest is necessary because we serve the same God who came down on Mount Sinai with fire and thunder and lightning and the ground shook when he spoke, a God of absolute holiness, a God who is terrifyingly dangerous to sinners, not because he's mean, not because he's unloving, but because a holy and righteous God must judge sin. That's why there needs to be a priest. So last semester, we looked at all the things God did for the Israelites to protect them from his wrath. He gave them rituals, laws, sacrifices, a priesthood. There must be someone to stand between the sinner and the terrifying holiness of God. A mediator, someone who can take the blood behind the curtain and sprinkle it on the mercy seat. In the the Levitical system, that someone was the high priest. Now, New Testament worship is very different than Old Testament worship. But we still need a high priest, someone to stand between our sinfulness and God's consuming holiness. For us, the high priest is Jesus Christ, the one who stands between us and God and protects us. So in the scripture we looked at today, The preacher uses that mysterious Old Testament figure, Melchizedek, to explain how Jesus' priesthood has replaced the Levitical priesthood. And I know you think I'm going to talk about Melchizedek today, but I'm not. I hope you remember Dr. Young's sermon about Melchizedek, or you listened to John MacArthur, and it was long. I apologize. It was long, but it was good. Um, Or you talked about it in small groups. I'm not really going to talk much about Melchizedek Melchizedek today. When I was looking at the scripture for this week's lesson, I was just struck by the fact that God swore an oath. You noticed at the end of chapter 6, there was an oath, and there was actually a second oath at the end of chapter 7. God swore an oath was just amazing to me, and that's what I'm going to talk about today. So I'm going to start by asking you a question. Is there anything God can't do? We want to say no, but that's not true. God is perfectly righteous and holy. God cannot sin. He can't sin. It's against his nature. He wouldn't be God if he sinned. He is also, if you're doing the attributes of God, you may have come to this already, immutable. 
That means unchanging. He's never going to change into someone who can sin. So we're going to start by reading Hebrews 6, 13 through 20. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is final for for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So in this passage, the preacher mentions two things it is impossible for God to do. He cannot fail to keep a promise, and he cannot break an oath. That makes these two things rock solid, certain, sure, unchangeable truth. Now, God made many promises to Abraham. Um, Some of you looked them up in your homework this week. But when did he swear an oath? Well, I'm sorry, I forgot to give you that reference. (laughs) I should have sent you to Genesis 22. Um, In Genesis 22, Abraham has taken his son Isaac the son of the promise, the miracle child, to Mount Moriah to sacrifice him as God has commanded him to do. Abraham believed God. Hebrews chapter 11 tells us that Abraham believed that even if he had to sacrifice Isaac, God could raise him from the dead in order to keep his promises. We know that God stopped the sacrifice and provided a ram in Isaac's place. Then in Genesis 22, 16 to 18, God says this to Abraham. By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Well, Paul tells us in Galatians 3.16, this offspring who will defeat the enemies and bless the nations is Jesus. God swore an oath to Abraham that he would send Jesus to defeat the enemies, sin, death, Satan, and bless the nations, not only the Jews. The nations means the Gentiles. Jesus says to the Jews in John 8.56, Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So what does a promise and an oath made to Abraham have to do with us? Well, Paul also says in Galatians 3, If you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise, sons of God through faith. That's the Hebrew Christians, and it's us, the Gentile Christians. We are all heirs of Abraham, so we can claim that promise 
and the oath as our own. But why did did God go out of his way to confirm his promise with an oath? Isn't his word enough? His word is true. Why did he swear an oath? Well, God doesn't take the oath because his promise can't be trusted. He takes an oath because we are reluctant to trust him. He takes the oath because life is hard and our faith is weak. He goes out of his way to confirm his word to us, to give us even more reason to trust him. Let's look at Hebrews 6, 17 through 20 again. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. This passage tells us in verse 17 that God desired something. When the Bible tells us what God desires, we should pay attention. So let's look and see. He desired to show the unchangeable character of his purpose, that his purpose will never change. Well, what is his purpose? It's all over the Bible. There's a beautiful summary of it in Ephesians chapter 1. 3 through 14, Paul tells us about God's purpose and We don't see it in the English because it's broken up into sentences. But in the Greek, Paul is so excited about what he's saying that it's one wrong run-on sentence for 12 verses. So let's look at Ephesians Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. And in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, believed in him and were sealed by the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Wow. That is God's unchangeable plan and purpose. From before he even created the world, to redeem sinners whom he chose and loved, and not only to forgive us, but to make us holy, to adopt us, to bless us, to give us an inheritance by uniting us with Christ and sealing us with the Holy Spirit. And I hope you heard the refrain running through this passage, to the praise of his glory to the praise of his glory, to the praise of his glorious grace. 
God's unchangeable purpose is redemption in Christ that we will rightfully and sincerely praise him for his glory and grace. This is the unchangeable purpose the author of Hebrews is talking about. The oath was given to underline the promise, not for God's sake. He doesn't need to take an oath. His word is true, but for our sake. The verse says, to show us more convincingly. He wants to convince us that his promise is true. So God desired to show the unchangeable character of his purpose more convincingly. Why? Verse 18 tells us, so that we would be strongly encouraged to hold fast, to persevere, not to turn away, not to drift off, not to be overwhelmed by persecution or circumstances, but to hold fast to the hope set before us. And that hope is God's unchangeable purpose, our salvation. Now, we use the word hope in a lot of different ways. I might say, I hope it doesn't rain today. I'm expressing a desire or a wish. I don't want it to rain today. But I'm not in charge of the weather. I have no control over whether or not it's going to rain. It's a good thing I'm not because it wouldn't ever rain if I were in charge of the weather. We say, I hope my daughter's going to do well on the test she has to take today. Well, what we mean is she studied. If it's a fair test and she remembers the material, I expect she'll do well. We're expressing an expectation. But circumstances can change that. She may forget the material. The teacher might give a terrible test. It happens. Um, She might get sick in school and have to go home and not even take the test. All kinds of circumstances can interfere with that kind of hope. What the Bible talks about when it talks about hope is something completely different. It's not a wish or a desire. It's not an expectation based on circumstances. Biblical hope is rock-solid assurance that God's purpose and promises are real and unchangeable. It is truth. Biblical hope is not based on circumstances. God has guaranteed it with an oath. It is certainty. It will happen. God swears his oath so that we will have assurance, a sure and steadfast anchor for our souls, something to hold us steady when the winds and waves of life wash over us, Um, something we can hold on to when there are family problems or persecution or a job loss or a death, all kinds of problems that we face. We have this sure and steadfast anchor for our souls. And we have this anchor firmly planted in the Holy of Holies, God's throne room, where it has been taken by Jesus Christ, our high priest. So in chapter 7, the preacher introduces Melchizedek. The reason Melchizedek appears right here is this. The preacher has just told us that Jesus has taken our hope, our salvation, into the holy place, the Holy of Holies, behind the veil where only the Levitical high priest could go, and only once a year. The Jewish mind would immediately think, what right does he have to be there? Kings were never allowed in the Old Testament to do priestly duties. And when they tried, bad things happened to them. We have the example of King Saul and King Uzziah. 
One of them lost his kingdom. The other one became a leper. Kings were never allowed to do priestly duties. So the story of Melchizedek is put here to answer that question. How can Jesus, a king from the tribe of Judah, also be a priest? He's not descended from Aaron. He's not even a Levite. So the preacher introduces Melchizedek. Melchizedek, I think, is a real person who lived in history, who is a type or a picture of Christ. He's both the king and a priest of the Most High God. His story is in Genesis 14. You looked it up if you did your homework. The preacher is arguing here that there's another kind of priesthood, which predates the Levitical priesthood and is superior to it. And then he introduces Psalm 110. Psalm 110 was written at least a thousand years after God established the Levitical priesthood. And in Psalm 110, Jesus is presented as our high priest. God declares with an oath to Jesus that the Levitical priesthood will be replaced with a Melchizedekian, try and say that three times fast, a Melchizedekian, see, I can't even do it twice, a Melchizedekian priesthood will replace the Levitical priesthood. I hope you talked about that in your small group because I'm not going to talk about Melchizedek anymore. We're going to go on to the second oath that God swears. It's in the Hebrews 7, 17 through 28. For it is witnessed of him, that is Jesus, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced, through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. So here we have another oath. In chapter 6, God the Father swore an oath to us that his purpose is unchangeable. Our salvation, everything associated with it, is unchangeable. Our hope is secure because it doesn't depend on us and our wavering faith. It depends on God, who is faithful. But for our hope in chapter 6 to be secure, our sin problem has to be dealt with. There has to be a high priest. Because only a high priest can offer the necessary sacrifices. So we see here God the Father in Psalm 110 swearing an oath to Jesus that he will be a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Now, God is not swearing an oath to Jesus because Jesus doesn't trust his word. 
God is swearing an oath to Jesus so that we can read it in Psalm 110 and we can trust his word. Our hope is secure because God has provided us with the perfect high priest. God has replaced what was temporary and flawed and only a picture of what was to come with the reality of perfect, eternal high priest, Jesus, who has offered himself as a perfect and sufficient sacrifice and who is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. That's a promise for all Christians, and it's the most beautiful promise. Jesus is able. He has the necessary power. There's nothing he can't do. There's nothing he can't overcome to save us. He holds us fast, and he gives us the power to hold fast to God's promises. He is able to save to the uttermost. Now, that's not a word we use. Did you look it up? It means to the highest degree, completely lacking nothing, all-encompassing, comprehensively, to the very end, perfectly, forever, without limit. He can save us comprehensively. When we come to him with our sin, he doesn't say, oh, no, not you again. His salvation is without limit. He's able to save to the uttermost since or because he always lives to make intercession for us. Always. Never ending. Not restricted by circumstances. Not only as long as I lead a good life and I never sin, but always, period. He is always there to make intercession for us. 1 John 2, 1 says, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Romans 8, 34 says, who is to condemn us? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Because he always intercedes for us, nothing can separate us from God's love. Nothing can put us outside of God's purpose, not circumstances, not our wills, not our sins, not Satan's accusations. We are always safe, always, period. Because he intercedes for us, he will not only save us from our sins, he will not leave us in our sins. His will for our lives is our sanctification and eventually our glorification. And his will is always perfect, and his will will always be accomplished. So God's oath to us in Hebrews 6 is made possible by his oath in Hebrews 7. Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. So I'm going to close by asking you two questions. If you're a Christian... If you have drawn near to God through Jesus Christ, do you have assurance of your salvation? That is God's desire for you. That's what he said in chapter 6, that you would believe his promises. He even went so far as to swear two oaths to that effect so that you would believe. What difference would it make in your life if you truly did believe God's promises? How would your family life or your church life or your business life, or your soccer mom life look different if you truly claimed God's promises? Would you be braver? Would you be stronger? Would you be more peaceful? Would you be more joyful? Think of how your life might be different 
What's stopping you from believing in God? He gave you promises. He cannot lie, and he's sworn an oath. The second question is this. If you have not drawn near to God through Jesus Christ, where are you placing your hope? Where is the anchor for your soul? Where do you turn when life turns terrible? Do you turn to your money, education, social status, politics, your husband, your children, different religion, even things that are good, church attendance, Bible study, your prayer life? None of these things make you right with God. None of these things will protect you on the day of judgment. None of these things will give you hope. God desires for you to draw near him through Jesus Christ. The only hope available in this world and the next, the rock-solid hope that God has sworn to us with an oath. Let's pray. Father, you are a good and gracious God. Thank you that you would stoop to swear an oath to us as if we could not trust your word. Father, you've given us grace upon grace upon grace in our salvation. Help us to understand that you truly mean it. Help us to claim the assurance that you've given us with your oath. Help us to live in it and to have it change our lives. Father, thank you for Jesus, our great high priest, the guarantor of a better covenant, the giver of a better hope, and we pray in his name. Amen.